BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Theroux household during lockdown. Against a soundtrack of children running wild and parents taking turns to squeeze in work while the other tries to rein them in. And my work during these strange times is this, Grounded with Louis Theroux, a podcast series for BBC Radio 4, in which I talk to people similarly locked down who I've been keen to meet. Only now, we meet remotely, using video conferencing software and getting our guests to record their half of the conversation. I'm doing some recording as well. One, two, one, two. How does it sound to you? That's Lenny Henry, my guest for today, someone I grew up watching on TV and who way back I tried to get to appear in one of my documentaries. But perhaps quite rightly, he turned me down. Not this time, though. With nowhere else to go, he set his device to record and we began. OK, well, let's rock. How are you doing, Lenny? I'm doing all right. I'm going mad slightly. I've had a weird journey where I've ended up near where I used to live when I was married. So it's odd. But there's sheep and stuff. Sheep and grass and trees, which is lovely. I always wanted that. I know I'm very, very... My mum used to say, Len, you're blessed. So I'm blessed. Question one, how are you doing in lockdown? Are you someone who needs the stimulation of going somewhere else for work? And also, how is it on the home front? Are you sort of keeping busy? Are you getting along with your other half and all that sort of thing? Yeah. All of those things. I'm doing all of those things. I'm a turn. So because I'm writing all the time, I've just been given the nod to write my second book. I wrote a book called Who Am I Again? Which I've read and very much enjoyed. I've been given the nod to do part two, which is basically three of a kind to Lenny Henry in pieces. Well, you left us sort of on a cliff edge. Yes, that was deliberate. It was almost like one of those Saturday serials where the hero's <laughs> dangling from a rope. Or Flash Gordon. <laughs> Who quite clearly had died at the end of each episode. You're on the verge of huge success. Well, you're already experiencing huge success, but you're about to launch three of a kind. Yeah, it finished nearly the end of Tiswas. We still had OTT to do. And the beginning of three of a kind, that transition, which is an amazing thing, really, you know, to go from being in a minstrel show and being in light entertainment and appearing on Blankety Blank with Terry Wogan and Celebrity Sweepstakes and all those kind of programmes, to being in a award-winning sketch show. It was great. I remember that show. It was a terrific show. I've taken this off on a tangent because you were saying that you're a turn. Yeah, I'm a turn. I've been commissioned to do various things. I'm writing an episode for a drama series. I've got a production company, so I have to generate ideas for that. And I write treatments and outlines and scripts sometimes. So you've been busy. You feel mentally... Composed, relatively... I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) What's lovely is that we're all here, we're all cooking, everybody's baking, but I have these blocks where I have to go off and do Zoom calls about things. So suddenly you find your days are fuller than they would have been if you'd been going into London every day. I'm doing a lot of stuff. The first couple of weeks of the lockdown, there were small consolations to be found in... A sort of sense of togetherness, I suppose, a sort of certain blitz spirit, and then being with my family full-time. And then very occasionally I'd be sort of ambushed by a weird sense of upset, and I'd realise, oh, I'm actually feeling this more than I perhaps realise. Yeah. 
I've had that. I think it's good to talk to people. I've started bringing people up out of the blue. My siblings and I just talk for an hour. And my family, there's lots of jokes. So there's a real tendency of joking the lockdown away. It's very easy to bubble yourself, to cocoon yourself in a bubble and to just be in your own little world. Whatever I feel like that, I've got to call somebody to just get out of myself because if you get too into yourself, you can be stuck in a place where you don't want to be. Have you heard any good lockdown jokes? No. Did you hear there's going to be a a round of applause to show appreciation for delivery drivers? It's going to be between nine and five tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, that's funny. I didn't tell it very well. No, you did it very well indeed. <laughs> I, I find it really odd. What's great about the internet is that there's so many people who aren't professionals just uploading stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of it that isn't funny. I've always, I don't want to embarrass you, Lenny, I've always been a big fan. I'm a little younger than you. I was born in 1970, so I'm about 12 years younger, but grew up very much watching you on TV and enjoying all the catchphrases that were repeated in the school playgrounds and, and then later on with your sketch comedy. And it feels like you're someone who sort of never really stopped. There's never really been a period of time that I'm aware of in which you haven't had some presence on the airwaves. Yeah, I did a television series every year from 1970-something right up until the end of the 90s. It was really odd to know what you were doing every single year. And then it sort of all bumped to a halt, and I was a bit kind of, oh, no, they don't like me What, in the late 90s? What happened was my mum passed away, and I was a bit down, and then um, lovely Clive Tullow came to me and said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I just want to make people laugh, because I felt like I'd been doing drama, I was in Hope and Glory... When you're doing a drama, you often find yourself cracking more gags than if you're doing comedy. In comedy, you're concentrating so hard on making the jokes work that there's no time to have fun in between. Whereas when you're doing a drama, you often make many, many more jokes. I know this because I work with Ian McShane, who doesn't stop cracking gags right up until they say action, and he starts being all serious, and everybody else on the set is still wetting themselves. And then he wins the BAFTA. I just thought, oh, I'm making a lot of jokes here. Maybe it's time to do something funny. So when Clive said, what do you want to do now? I said, I think it's time to do something funny again. And In Pieces at the beginning of the millennium was a wonderful tonic for recovering and self-healing because suddenly I was thinking, yeah, I can make people laugh and let's do it differently. Let's do genre comedy. Let's do film parodies. Let's do advert parodies, TV parodies. It was a different way of doing it. And then... 2010 was a, another big change because I suddenly didn't want to do sketches anymore. I thought I was going round in circles and I got asked to do Othello and that changed my life. Not because I'd always yearned to be in the theatre, because I hadn't. I'd turned down a lot of plays because I just thought, oh, there's no money and it's a long time and all that stuff. And then suddenly it was the right time. It was just the right time. I needed a challenge I'd loved working with people like David Threlfall and Robbie Coltrane. You know, I'd worked with Bob Hoskins in sketches and stuff. And I just noticed there was a different work ethic and there was just something else going on, something more real. When you do sketches, it's very much who gets to the dressing up box first, which silly voice can you do first. But when I worked with actors like Alison Steadman and stuff, I just thought, oh, OK, there's a different vibe here. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done. But it was 
the right thing to do. It changed my life. Let's go back and because I, I finished reading your book yesterday and it resonated with me for many reasons, not least because I'd just written a book at the end of last year as well, which came out around the same time. Is this, I've got to get through this. Got to get through this. That's, Thank that's you for the plug. That's such a great title. You and Joe Lysett are up there. Right. He's always doing wacky titles. I appreciate that. I can't even tell if you're being sarcastic, but I'm going to take it as a compliment. No, I'm not as being a compliment. sarcastic. Joe Lysett did a tour called That's the Way a Hurt, a hurt Joe Lysett. That's good, right? That's good, right? That's very good. Yeah, he's, very he's very good. clever with that stuff. So I think, you know, I'm playing you a compliment. Well, thank you. I didn't even think of the title. It was a meme that started appearing on T-shirts and mugs. Oh, you stole that? Well, I prefer the term repurposed. <laughs> and I figure it's my name, so it's not really stealing. It belongs to me. Reappropriating. There we go. But I found it fairly arduous and quite exacting. You know, it took a lot out of yeah. me. Yours is into some heavy stuff. It's, a, I would say, quite an exposing, honest and reflective book. How did you find the process? Um, that's me making a noise with my lips, listeners. It's a reflective noise that I do often, and it's annoying, as my partner will attest. I did it in various ways. I wrote it down on my computer. I wrote it by hand in my journal. Then I realised that I couldn't read my handwriting, so that was a bit redundant. I dictated it to someone, and that turned out to be a really good thing. Once I dictated it, I'd get the pages back, and then I'd rewrite it. What helped was I'd just finished my PhD. It's taken me seven and a half years, and that was just my tutor saying, this isn't good enough, you've got to do it again, do that paragraph again, write that whole essay again. So I was used to redrafting. And the other thing was, I did quite a lot of grief therapy after my mum passed away. And so I got used to just being honest about my feelings about things and sort of, within reason, vomiting things out. And there were things that I cut from the book because my partner and my family read it and said, you can't put that stuff in there. Too naked and Too raw. Too naked and raw, so I had to cut. And they told me which bits. But it was, it was difficult, it was arduous, but in the end, I felt, if I'm not going to be honest now when I'm in my early 60s. When is that going to happen? When is the boy going to be the man? And I kept thinking, if you're still worried about what people think about you, you've got to get over that. And so the whole thing about my birth father and the dad that raised me, that was a massive thing for me to have that in the open because I'd not spoken about that to anyone. You're referring to the fact that the man you were, for the first 10 years of your life, you supposed to be your father who raised you was in fact not your birth father. Your birth father was another man. Yeah, Bertie, Albert. Bertie, who you'd go in, when you're age 10, you're sent to do chores for him every Saturday. Every Friday. And I had no idea why. And your mum says, it's time for you to get to know your uncle. Uncle Bertie, Bertie. yeah. Go round and see if he needs help with anything. Yeah, that's right. And so you did that for a year. I did that for quite a long time, yeah. He lived in a bedsit, so everything was in one room a bed, the wardrobe, the TV the dining table, and he used to cook in a shared kitchen. And so my job on a Friday after school was to go down there. I literally had no idea why I was there, but I would sweep out his room, remake the bed, and I'd do the washing up, and he'd feed me and give me pocket money and send me on my way. And would he ask after you? Would he say, how are you doing? Did you pass the time of day, or was it just more well, of a friendly it was a real blokey silence. bloke. He wouldn't really talk about, old oh, school, old oh, things going out of school. He didn't do that. He'd just tolerate me being around... I've got three boys. If I told, say, the 12-year-old, 
Every Friday you have to go and do chores at someone's house. I don't think it would go well. I was a very obedient child. My mum would have knocked me through three brick walls. She had arms like Popeye. So there was no chance of me going, I'm not doing that, that sounds stupid. You know the cartoons where you get punched and your eyeballs stay in the same place, but your head spins round? It would have been like that. <laughs> so I just went and did it. And Bertie had a son called Lloyd, who used to sit and do linguaphone lessons on his headphones. And he would just watch me in my pinny <laughs> doing the cleaning. And then one day he said, you don't know why you're here, do you? And I sort of went... Rrr. And he said, that's your dad. What? He said, if you don't believe me, go and ask him. So I went in the kitchen and Bertie was in there cooking chicken and banging the pot on the wall to make sure the rice was done. And I said, Lloyd says you're my dad, is that true? And he said, yeah. You would have been 11 at this yeah, point? Yeah, and I just ran home and I said to my mum, is it true? In tears? I was really upset, yeah. Because if they'd told me when I was little... It would have been cool. I mean, you often get this with kids that have been adopted, you know, who don't find out until they're 14 or whatever. To find out when I was 11, that was not a good thing. But, you know, in Jamaican culture, we have this thing called big people. This is big people things. It's none of your business. Come on, you as a child, we as big people. And big people things meant you had nothing to do with adult affairs. This was something to do with them, and you were not told what was... So anything could have been happening. Somebody could have been shot. I was wearing these really weird clothes for eight months, and I didn't know where they came from until somebody mentioned in passing almost a year later that Cousin Melly had died in a car crash, and we'd inherited all his clothes. I'd been wearing his clothes for seven months and hadn't realised that I was going to school in these weird shirts and ties, and they belonged to this dead dude. He wasn't wearing them when he was run over, I He assume. might have been. Suddenly all these neatly packed shirts and trousers and shoes and socks and underpants arrive at your house, and your mum goes, oh, these are for you, you must wear these. You know, it was They were different anyway. times back then, in the 60s and 70s, in particular in relation to the level of racism you experienced. Yeah, because remember, I lived just down the road from Wolverhampton, Enoch Powell gave the Rivers a blood speech there. It was the MP. Rashtinger was only just finished when my mum came over. My mum went over because Uncle Clifton wrote her a letter and said, you must come to England, there's plenty, plenty jobs here, and you can get 30 shillings a week. So when my mum heard that, she sort of stood up to my dad and said, I'm going to go, whatever you think. The first few months of being here were awful. First of all, she was sleeping on Uncle Clifton's floor. And wherever she went, she got racially abused and patronised in shops. People talked very slowly. This was 57, 58? This 57. So it's about 10 years after Windrush? Yeah, so there was no camera crew when Mum arrived. People were making visible complaints about having to be in the same queue as a black person. People were still saying no blacks, no Irish, no dogs to come and stay in their boarding houses. It was tough. And just to bring up another bit of history that was unknown to me was the details about this MP, Peter Griffiths. Oh, yeah. He had... Um, running on an I'm not going to say the N-word racial... on your show. He was a Tory MP in Smethwick, which is three miles from Dudley. He campaigned under the banner of, if you want an N-word for a neighbour, vote Liberal or Labour. And he got in. And it was so bad in Smethwick. There was real discord between immigrants and the white populace there. Malcolm X went to Smethwick and walked around and talked to people and said, you know, you've got to unite and you've got to defend yourselves, but you've got to also try and make people understand that Malcolm X, 
How it sounds like a comic mean? strip episode. Malcolm X went to Smethwick. Two nouns that you wouldn't expect in the same Unbelievable. sentence. Things were so bad in the West Midlands that the baddest black dude in America <laughs> flew on his own dime and walked around. All right, Malcolm. But anyway, that was the Midlands experience of Malcolm X. And then the guy got kicked off the ticket. The guy didn't survive another term. Who, Peter Griffiths? Mm, didn't, he didn't survive. No, but I had a wee Google of him before this chat. He then popped up as the MP for a different constituency and lasted from 79 through to 97. Damn. The more things change. Yeah, you would have thought that would be the end of him, but it turns out he had a very significant afterlife apparently his daughter came up with the with the little catchphrase and they all thought that was great but you know this is where i lived and i was racially abused for quite a long period when i was going to primary school and secondary school every day you're walking through the gate somebody would call you a name and try to instigate a fight and I can't fight, so I'd always be there with my fists up. In the book, you mentioned that you can't fight, but you seem to have had plenty of practice. There was one bloke who, more or less, almost by appointment, started a fight with you, and you'd roll around most mornings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had to learn how to fight. And so I could defend myself. And luckily, there were a couple of growth spurts around the time of puberty where I suddenly was this six-foot kid. I started to put on some timber, you know, and people weren't messing with me anymore. We had an England schoolboy boxer at my school who used to use me as a punching bag because I was big and I could take it. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff I was having to deal with on a daily basis, Louis. In your book, and even the way you talk about it now, to some extent, you, I wouldn't say you make light of it, but you talk about it seemingly without a great deal of animosity or sort of trauma, the book doesn't talk about you coming home in tears or your life being pain and misery because of that. Do you just hold back on expressing that? Or was it just that it was normalised to you to the point where it didn't profoundly affect you, so far as you were aware then? They do say no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, don't they? When you write it all out, I suddenly realised how sad some of it was, actually. My partner said, wow, this is really... Some of this is really sad. And I hadn't realised that. I was writing it and thinking, oh, that's a funny bit, that's a funny bit, because that's what I'm conditioned to do. But reading the whole thing, I realised that there were many sad moments and that actually they should stay there, because that was as a result of my therapeutic experiences. I realised that if you get it all out, you're going to see the good and the bad, you're not just going to see the funny bits. It wasn't my job to curate it and go, oh, let's not have that bit, that's not funny enough. I read sometimes books by comics and go, where's the beef here, you know, why didn't you dig deeper a bit? You know, Steve Martin in Born Standing Up, he'll talk about, you know, his father's jealousy and moving from house to house, but he doesn't really drill down. I miss that. With me, I wanted to have it all out there, why not? What comes across to me is almost an ambivalence that you look back and see yourself as being intent on making friends, making yourself liked, getting along with people and integrating, partly under the influence of your mum, who yeah. sort of made it your mission to integrate. I think it had been her mission. And at the same time, th there's some sort of sense of ambivalence that perhaps looking back, you feel like you were overly accommodating, that maybe you should have put up more resistance. Yeah, you don't want to be walked on. You don't want to be a doormat for people. And I think that there was an over-eagerness to be everybody's friend and to be liked. It's a kind of common trope, isn't it, of comedians, you know, they want to be liked. 
and I was no different. But after a while, you do get the feeling that actually you should have pushed back at that guy and stuck up for yourself more. You know, my daughter did judo, so she was able to stick up for herself when she needed to. And I think it's important that you stand for something, otherwise you'll fall for anything. And I wish one of my parental male figures had said that to me. Other than yourself, your mum's sort of the main character in it. She is in this book, yeah. What comes across is a lot of love and affection and also some complicated processing of the level of physical discipline that went on. Yeah, well, you know, now social services would be around. Jamaicans often, and third world people, often make jokes about the strictness of their families. But actually, you can see sometimes the middle-class white audience kind of going, hang on, that doesn't sound right, that she hit you with a frying pan or that she hit you with a boot. Did she hit you with the frying pan once? It's referred to several times. Was it one sort of signature, obviously traumatic incident, or was that something she would do from time to time? The frying pan was once. I got hit with a pan once. One time she hit me with the with an iron cord, you know, the lead from an iron. She hit me with that once. No, several times that happened. You got the feeling that it was the way she'd been brought up in Jamaica... And she was going to show us what that was like and how that felt. There's a Jamaican saying, if you can't hear, you'll feel. If we transgressed, she wanted us to understand what it meant to pay for transgression. It's why I'm not a master criminal, Louis, or a thief, because I always had this thought balloon, like in the cartoons of my mum holding a frying pan. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about because... There's such a taboo over it now. Look, I've got three kids, so I can sort of understand the temptation to discipline your children and that there's flashes of anger. That Sometimes a parent can have a tantrum, right? Well, you know, I would run away and do what kids do, but, you know, she would really catch me and I would have bruises, I would have welts. And this is funny when Richard Pryor says it and it would be funny when I would do it in my act, but actually when you reflect on it and you read it back to yourself, you go, oh, okay. This woman was physically abusing me. And how do I feel about that? And then in the end, what you do is you go, well, that's what mum was like. But it's still tough to remember and to re-experience. And when, you, when you're writing that stuff, you're experiencing it again in the moment. That brought some sadnesses for me when I was writing the book. Because I realised that this woman maybe needed somebody to talk to, didn't have anybody to share her problems with. The dad that raised me, kind of like a black Gary Cooper or something, he wasn't particularly overly verbal. There wasn't a lot of sharing of feelings going on in that house. Let me put it that way. So I think there was a lot of feeling constipation. And suddenly you're in the middle of beating your child, having these feelings of frustration and anger and self-loathing and not knowing what to do with those feelings. And suddenly you're taken out on your kid, you know. Which is awful. Is there a part of you that thinks, oh, it instilled some sort of sense of restraint or appropriateness in you because she was so strict? Because you could just as easily say that if you use physical violence on children, it sort of teaches them the language of violence. Well, yeah. I knew there were consequences for ill behaviour. And it was violence, you know. And it made me scared of lots of things. And I, I sort of regret that. I would have liked to have been more fearless, being able to stand up for myself. I was often beaten up, and I hated it, but I didn't know how to defend myself. And so I would just allow people to 
do stuff to me that now I would never dream of letting somebody insult me or call me a racist name or whatever. I wouldn't dream of that stuff. But as a little kid, I've been brought up to integrate and be everybody's friend. And so suddenly you just felt yourself being internally wounded by things that people said and not knowing what to do about it. We're almost halfway through this podcast. By the way, you're listening to Grounded with me, Louis Theroux. And I wanted to find out how it was that this young man from the West Midlands, who'd yearned to be able to stand up for himself, finally got his break and found his voice. I was discovered in a disco. In a disco, right. Tell me about that. Well, we all used to underage drink. When I turned 14, I had white friends because I'd integrated successfully. In the house, I was a Jamaican, but outside the house, I talk like this because that's how my white friends talked. And suddenly I was introduced to this world of being in their house and listening to Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and eating ham, egg and chips. Suddenly I was in that world as well as being in the Caribbean world. And then I'd go to discos with them and they all drank. They were a bit older than me. I remember getting really, really drunk. I had to lie to my mum. I I think I ate something funny. I don't feel that. But I was absolutely bluted. So I was in this world with these white friends doing stuff that they did. And one of the things they did, because let's face it, nobody's going to come to your house and sit in your bedroom and listening to Black Sabbath. If you want to meet members of the opposite sex, you've got to go to a place where they might be. And where they might be was St Thomas's Disco next to the church. And we danced to glam rock and to Motown and James Brown. And we'd meet girls and have slow dances with them and stuff. You spend nearly all evening ignoring them, and then in the last five minutes there'd be this this rush to the dance floor to try and get a slow dance with the girl. The slow dance phenomenon continued into the uh, early 80s, and it was almost always the same song, the designated snog track. What was your snog track? It was by Hazel O'Connor. You drink your coffee. Was it? I'll drink my tea. (laughs) I wonder who should go now, go now, go now. I don't even know what it was called. It's from Breaking Glass. Do you remember that one? I I remember it. For some reason, it was that. Our one was... And it was a bit like musical chairs, where it was a sort of frantic rush to grab someone. I mean, I don't want it to sound too assaultive. No, it wasn't assaultive, because the girls were waiting to be asked to dance all night. But the boys would try and cram the whole dancing with a girl thing into the last 10 minutes and hope they get a snog. Is that what it was? I don't know that I ever solved the riddle. I was a late developer and actually glasses came a bit later. I was not considered prime snog material, material, I think, yeah. (laughs) My face was not coveted real estate. And as a result, I quite often had to sit that one out and I'd look around and then there was this sort of feeling of desolation as you noticed that the one or two remaining girls were not ones that you particularly wanted to dance Uh, with or you went up and said, I'll have a dance with you and they turned you down. Yeah, I would ask anybody to dance. I didn't want to be left out. You know, my friends would be dancing with girls. Sounds like I needed to learn how to integrate. Yeah, but some girls didn't, wouldn't dance with me because I was a black guy. But then, then you'd see other black how guys... How would you know that, out of interest? They'd say. That, it was, that would clarify it. Why would I date an ignog or a darkie or something like that? Why would I dance with you? But thankfully, that wasn't the main thing. Often, people would dance with you and be very, very kind. I had a lot of lovely kindness 
There weren't very many that were horrible to me. Just to regroup for a second, how did going to discos then lead to you getting onto TV? Oh, well, the DJ, he was the coolest guy on the block. He had three turntables and a microphone, and he would play the best records around. He had incredible, impeccable taste in music. And the Queen Mary, which held about 500 kids, would be packed every Sunday. The Queen Mary was the venue, and it was at Dudley Zoo, is yeah, that right? Yeah, it was at the top of Dudley Zoo, yeah. But he would play records, but also have competitions, talent competitions. And you could sing, or you could take off your clothes, or tell jokes, or something... I would watch it with Greg and Mac and Tom. They'd go, you're better than these guys. You should get up. Every week they told me to get up. I had this inherent shyness. I was quite shy. I would go, oh, no, I don't want to get up there. How weird is this? They'll laugh at me. I wouldn't get up. And then one day, after the guy got up and took his clothes off and went, ta-da, after the girls pretending to sing like the Supremes fell through the note of tunefulness and didn't hit a branch... They all said, please get up and win the bottle of whiskey. So I got up on stage and I did this thing called Wobbly Elvis. I sang Jailhouse Rock. And I don't know about you when you were a kid, could you remember lyrics of songs? Yeah, better than I can now, for sure. I could remember lyrics of songs off by heart. So I sang Jailhouse Rock without having to read it or anything. And I could sound a bit like Elvis. But, um... She's here with a cup of tea. Hurrah! She? My missus. Hurrah! Can I have one? Do you want a homemade oh, cookie? I could kill a cookie. cookie. I'd love one. I'd love to package Just it hold it up close to, to the me. camera and then I can smell it. Oh, no. Better than that. Oh, got, Easter egg. I got an Easter egg. Anyway, suddenly there I was. And the way they looked at me and the way they responded was a really weird thing. It was like the first ever proper round of applause... I'd ever received from an audience. I just thought, that's brilliant. And how do I get that again? How can I repeat that process? And so I went up the next week. I had a hat that my dad had left lying around. I bought this hat on and I did as many impressions as you can do with a hat. I did John Wayne and I did James Stewart and I did Humphrey Bogart. And that got a big round of applause. And I started to think, oh, what else can I do? And I just wrote down everything I saw on television. There was a television programme with impressionists like Freddie Starr and a brilliant guy called Paul Melba, who did James Mason. James Mason. And I started to copy whatever he was doing, but the king was Mike Yarwood. Mike Yarwood... I remember Mike Yarwood. ..had yeah, his own yeah. show. He was a legend, yeah. Yeah, and he would do these things where he would put on a pair of glasses and he would be Robin Day, and he would take the glasses off and he would be Tommy Cooper, and then he'd... He would, um, I think I said this at Brighton, he would do Harold Wilson, he would do Ted Heath with the shoulders. <laughs> what a shitty Billy art. He would do Dennis Healy. He did all these amazing impressions. And I copied every damn one of those things until I could do them off by heart and sound kind of like the people. And people were amazed by it. But my mates weren't amazed by it because this was something that Len did. Your mates knew that you had this gift, right? Yeah. How did your family, your siblings and your mum and dad not realise? Or they did realise? Because this wasn't something you did in the house. That was pure integration, park life stuff. That was something I did with my white friends. Isn't that interesting? They had no idea. For a lot of comedians, they sort of say, oh, I started out because I tried to make my mum and dad laugh or my older brothers laugh. My mum was the main funny person in our house. If you'd done one of your impressions for her as a 14 or 15-year-old, that would not have gone well? There was no wisecracking from a child in our house. 
because that was seen as being cheeky and overstepping the mark. So if you cracked wise in earshot of your parents, you'd get a slap around the head or something. There's a difference between being cheeky and doing an impression of Elvis Presley, right? Because that's not seditious. It's not undermining them if you are doing an impression of someone. No, in our house, my mum was the funny one. End of story. Really? So when I was on the park and I was enthroned in funnydom, Len's the one who does... Raggy. (laughs) You know, suddenly I had that. And it was like a little secret I held in my heart for quite a long time. What sort of sense of humour did your mum have? Did she tell jokes? Did she do impersonations? No, it was stories. She'd tell stories about what she'd encountered when she was at market that day. She'd tell stories about Miss Murphy and her hair or what somebody's wig was like. Miss Murphy have a whole documentary going on in her wig this week. Everything was crawling around in the, you know, she'd have descriptive passages that were purple and well worked out. And you knew on the way home from work, she'd be thinking about what stories am I going to tell about what Observational happened Observational comedy, like yeah. she was a noticer. She was a noticer and she knew that if she said it in a certain way, she would make the family laugh. And I watched that every dinner time. I liked the way she commanded everybody's attention around the dinner table, and I wanted that for myself. But I was too scared to do it myself at the dinner table because she would look at me like, what, what, what do you think you're doing? And I didn't want that. Just thinking about you and your brilliance at impressions, and what occurs to me is that it's a very pure kind of a talent. Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but it's something close to a kind of almost genetic gift. You know, like there's people who are good at impressions and there's people who can't do impressions. I think that's a a integration thing. Don't you think it's an immigration thing too? When you go to another country, you spend quite a lot of time trying to figure out how you're going to fit in with everybody. And the go-to number one thing is to pretty quickly figure out what the crack is, figure out how everybody's talking. So within a year or so, you're talking like them. That's mimicry. Suddenly, this facility for integration and for learning how the locals talk became this other thing of, well, how does John Wayne talk? How does James Stewart talk? And I can use that to make my friends laugh too. So it was an inbred thing. It was a genetic thing of, you know, immigrants to fit in, learn how to talk like everybody else, and Lenny to fit in also learned all these other voices too. So that's what that was about. When you did that first act, it's very vividly described in your book, The Audition for the Producers of New Faces. And all these other acts are going up and not being given very long. They're calling out next. And then when you go up, you're up there for a minute, two minutes, three minutes. You keep thinking, when are they going to say next? Yeah, because I immediately thought, typical me, that they wouldn't like what I was doing and that pretty soon I'd be back at school saying, well, that's that then. But I didn't understand that what I was doing was a unique thing. You know, the only black impressionist we'd seen was Sammy Davis Jr. And I'm not saying I'm like him, but, you know, I went up and did my version of that. And they made a call and went, yeah, this kid should be on telly. He's rough. I was very rough. But they thought this could be something. And so I was given an opportunity. And when I watch the first ever appearance on New Faces, which I have done a lot now... I realised, oh, God, it was rough. There were a lot of jokes about, I'll just rub my face and the black will come off. There were four versions of that joke in the first ever set that I did on television. And if I'd have been a producer, 
I would have said, oh, why don't you just do one of those jokes? Let's think of something else for you to be funny about. There was a part of you that, I guess, felt the need to reassure the audience about their racial position in some way. I guess you could call it that. I think in the book I call it getting the joke in about my blackness first before somebody else did. In the clubs, it was very, very clear, as witnessed by Charlie Williams. You know, Charlie Williams told the jokes against himself before anybody else did. Charlie Williams... Charlie Williams was a Yorkshire comedian who happened to be black. He would come on stage and go, hey, up, old flower, and the audience would go, <gasps> because he was a black comedian that spoke like they did. You better laugh or I'll come and move in next door to you. That'll bring your rent down. You know, he would do jokes like that. And I learned very quickly that that was a pretty good road to go down. I didn't want to be a 16-year-old kid being beaten up by a bunch of people who didn't like me because of the colour of my skin. I didn't want that. No. Possibly that was the only road to go down at that point, in that time and place. I mean, was there another path that a black comedian could go down? You know, in that time and place, like, I'm going to come out and not say anything about being black. The audience might have been completely confused and befuddled. Yeah, well, they're still confused and befuddled today if a comedian comes on. If a black comedian or a Jewish comedian or a gay comedian comes on stage and doesn't talk about that stuff, that's weird. But it's different now. Now what's expected is to be uplifting about those things, to be positive about those things, not to turn inward and to attack yourself. But back in the day, you were expected to do all the dodgy jokes about yourself before the audience did. And the trip home, thinking about it, would be sad sometimes. Yeah. I walked I'm down sure. stage once and the whole front row were blacked up. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Thinking, oh, Lenny will think this is really funny. I was on Tizwas at the time, and I walked out on stage, and thankfully I said, oh, that's not particularly funny, lads. Do you want to go and wash that off or something? Somebody said, oh, you first, ha, ha, ha. But luckily the audience were on my side. And they said, come on, lads, come on. He doesn't like it. So they all went away and washed it off and came back. But I remember John Peel coming to see me in Norfolk, and he said it was really interesting because before I came on, people were saying racist things in the audience... But by the end of the night, I'd won them over. Maybe I'd internalised this, but I hadn't realised that I was having to win them over every night and break down barriers. But that's exactly what I was doing with every single gig. I hadn't realised until quite recently that you'd been in the Black and White Minstrels, right? Which obviously... Yeah, but I wasn't... You know, if I was in America and I was a black comedian, you'd be well within your rights to say, did you wear blackface? But in this country, that wasn't a trope. In this country, I was in the show doing my impressions and doing jokes. I was not part of the minstrel cohort. It was a huge show. It used to get 20 million viewers a week. There was a great performer called Les Want who did a pretty good impression of Al Jolson or Jimmy Cagney and Yankee Doodle Dandy or any of those guys. But the rest of it was light opera, songs from the shows in their normal voices or in a kind of a semi-American voice. But in blackface... In blackface, yeah. The girls didn't black up, but the guys did. The girls didn't black up. It's no. an extraordinary thing. What, what, what would have happened thinking? if they... <laughs> what would have happened if they just had had the exact same show, but no-one was in blackface? I think the Race Relations Board had a lot to say about it, and I think that I was a bit of a political football for being on that show. I didn't realise. I did the Christmas special in 78, and I was in their live show from 75 to 1979, 1980. I was just a kid in this show. And that's the point about being a kid. 
you do what you're told by grown-ups. My colleagues, my manager and my agent at the time, who was Robert Luff, who was the entrepreneur in charge of the Black Art Minstrels, they both thought it was a good show to learn your trade in. You know, it'll be a good show because they're not really there to see comedy. They're there to look at the costumes and to hear the great songs. And you can go on in the first half and do 12 minutes and nobody will say, that kid's an experience. They'll just endure you and allow you, tolerate you, because you're a little kid off the television, and you'll be something that will add some marquee value to the show. So that was my job, marquee value. And also a funny thing, hey, let's go and see the minstrel show where the real black guy is in it. That was that was the marquee value of that. Do you suppose, looking back, that it was also a way for them to say, oh, look, we're not racist, we can't be, we've got a young black comedian. Yeah, 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 I do think that. part of the show. I do think that. How can we be racist? There's a black guy in the show. But then... Can you imagine being a black member of that audience? My family came a couple of times, but I think they were in shock. No black or brown people ever in the audience, ever. What did your family make of it when they came to see it? God bless them, they never said anything to my face. Because remember, I was a kid, and also there was that thing of, this is what they're telling him he has to do, so I guess we'll have to go through this to get to the other end of it. And by then, had you sort of become the family breadwinner? Yeah, I was the guy. So, you know, this was the thing that was paying me quite a lot of money every week. So nobody wanted to rock that boat. I didn't want to rock that boat. You know, I was able to buy my mum a colour television or a carpet. You know, if any feelings I had, like, oh, I don't want to be in the show anymore, I had to really think hard about saying that because I just bought my mum a fridge. There's some people who would hear this and, and might think, well... It was a different time. Attitudes were different. In many ways, we were less educated about the way in which traditions can be offensive and destructive. But in fact, it was a very late overhang for the minstrel phenomenon. I mean, through the 60s, at least in America, it was already being viewed as somewhat dodgy. Godfrey Cambridge in America. We don't serve niggers in here. That's all right. I don't eat them. Richard Pryor was doing Black Lives Matter jokes in 1973, 1974. So it wasn't that people weren't enlightened. It was that people were sort of, in Britain, I think, refusing to be enlightened. I remember watching something recently, some big variety show in Italy, where a white performer blacked up to be Ray Charles and did lots of blind jokes. And the audience roaring with laughter. This was like a couple of years ago. So to me... It seems like the cultural lag is still happening. There are some people that are still catching up. You know, we were lucky. You know, alternative comedy happened in 79, 80 at the same time as punk. So I was starting to hear, oh, you don't, we don't do those kind of jokes anymore. There were uplifting jokes about being black and about coming from a large black family. There weren't jokes that slagged being black off. And I loved that. Suddenly I was in a place where I was able to talk about my upbringing and my family and my Auntie Pearl and my mom and my brothers and sisters, without having to make that snarky, self-loathing kind of joke. Was there a moment when you realised that alternative comedy was, was going on? How was, what was your first exposure to that? I was living in Wembley with an actor called Joe Charles and we went to the comic strip one night because we'd heard it was the thing and there was this thing called alternative comedy and this guy called Alexi Sale that we needed to get hip to. So we went... There were no black people on. We were the only two people of colour in the audience. And it was okay to be in that audience because there were no jokes about us made. Usually if we'd been the only black people in the audience in a 
club club, somebody would have made a joke about it. But here, Alexi didn't do jokes like that. Rick didn't do jokes like that. A didn't. Dawn and Jennifer didn't. Arnold Brown didn't. And so far from having your shoulders up round your ears as an audience member, we just went, oh, okay. Dawn and Jennifer are doing these two weird American women. Rick and Ada are doing these mad guys called the Dangerous Brothers who keep doing violence to each other. They shout at each other a lot. And Rick would grab his testicles and Adrian would grab Rick's testicles. Hard to describe, but it was hilarious. For you, schooled in this small mainstream comedy, did it feel immediately exciting? Or I could imagine there might be a bit of you that saw it as sort of amateurish and studenty. Well, it was more put together than I'd been when I was starting out. It felt like they'd rehearsed for a start. Dawn and Jennifer had lines which they'd learnt. It was an amazing evening out. It was kind of like theatre more than it was like people doing stand-up. And right, so it wasn't jokes. like a madcap, anything-goes atmosphere. It was actually quite a tight show. It was a very tight show. Yeah. And Rick Mail would come on and do this farty student called Rick. Oh, you're a funny bunch. And he would snort. My thing with comedians was, if you can make the audience laugh by breathing out or making a stupid noise, like Tommy Cooper would go, oh, thank you very much. And Rick would go, Ugh. they'd get a laugh just by doing that. And I would watch that and go, ooh, that's good. How are they doing that? There's no material. Rick could do five minutes, but with no jokes. You know, that's good. And Dawn and Jennifer would do these characters. And then Lex would come on and do this barrage of anti-middle-class, working-class, Marxist-Leninist stuff. It was very uncomfortable. It was like being nailed to your seat. So it it was a real schooling in what alternative comedy was. I watched that and thought, oh, you can do jokes that aren't about what they used to be about. You don't have to do that clubland stuff anymore. And so for me, it was like a a big curtain being pulled aside and a light shining in, particularly when I started to hang out more with the comic strip because I was dating Dawn, obviously. But the more I hung out with them, the more I realised that there was an ideology behind it. And once I understood this idea of you can't be racist and sexist, but you can be racy and sexy, suddenly that opened a door to another kind of comedy that myself and my collaborators decided to embark upon. Okay, this is a good space to operate from, which is where Three of a Kind and the Lenny Henry Show and all that stuff came from. Where do you think we're at now? You know, we talked a lot about attitudes to race in the 70s and 80s, and there are people now who would say, I've even heard it said, oh, Britain's not really got a race problem with racism anymore, that we're in these sun-filled uplands of colour blindness, right? What do you, you see? Do you think that? Well, what do you no, think? Really. What do I think? I think racism is still a problem, and I think in many respects it's as big a problem as it was. It's just more behind closed doors. I think it's quite overt. In terms of being racially abused, that stuff's still going. I was racially abused on the underground a couple of years ago. I was racially abused from a bus stop. Somebody called me the N-word. That happened a couple of years ago too. You know, if you look at the remarks online, that can be a whole other thing. That could be a nightmare for people to read the racist comments after, you know, a TV appearance or something. So racism is still an ongoing thing that we have to address. Luckily, we live in a world where people might not be doing stuff, but they have to pay lip service to this idea of being more diverse than they used to be because it's seen as a bad thing to be undiverse. So people are trying to be more inclusive. So you'll see more black and brown people in soaps or 
on the news or something. But still, when you go to do a show like the Today Show at Radio 4, or you go to places like ITV or BBC or somewhere, and you go behind the scenes, you won't see very many people that look like me or that look like Sanjeev Bhaskar or Mira Sayal. It's still a problem, unless they're all crammed together in the World Service. Hello, where are the black people? You know, but the people that make the decisions, the green light, the commission things, are still the people you'd expect. And that needs to change. And it's a slow thing. I hope in 200 years our kids are flying around on jetpacks and watching television shows on the inside of their eyes, going, ooh, why did it take you guys so long to change this? Mm. But now when I think about those things, I think we're in the middle of something here and we have to lead. Somebody has to lead and go, yeah, let's change things. Let's change things for the better. More women, more black people, more brown people, more people with disabilities talking about the things that concern them, the things that are affecting their lives in the media. The media is important. And if we can't see ourselves in the media, then that's problematic. They're having to do it now because a lot of the key workers are people of colour or they're immigrants or, you know, there are people with disabilities or there are people that came to this country to work in the NHS. They're having to acknowledge it now. And I think that's a good thing. But decision makers, the people that green light these things, the gatekeepers need to change and quickly. Otherwise, what, are we going to go through this for another 10 years? Another 20 years? Another 30 years? I hope that's not the case. Lenny, I could just talk to you all, all afternoon. I feel like you've done so much and there's so much to talk about. I'm Thank aware you. It's been very of, serious, Louis. I'm sorry about of that. trespassing on your time and goodwill. There's a couple more things I wouldn't mind getting into if, you're, if your energy's all right. I'm fine. I've had a cup of tea and a piece of chocolate. You've had your tea and your chocolate. You talk in your book quite a bit about Keith Harris, of Keith Harris and Orville yeah. fame, right? Bear with me, because this is going to connect. <laughs> so I was pleased to see that, because as you may know, I knew Keith Harris a little How bit. How did you know Keith? Well, I made a documentary about him in around 2002. Lucky so I spent you. a couple of weeks. I went and visited him at his house in Blackpool. Oh he was God. doing a panto in Crewe. What was that like? It was intense. He was quite an emotional man. He was very influential for a couple of years in my life. Something about his hair fascinated you. You talk about it a lot. He had a bubble perm. <laughs> All the blackness, none of the commitment. He had an afro. He had a kind of afro and very tight trousers. But he was hip. My take on Keith, like the idea of him being hip would shock me, but probably he was back in those days. He had an encyclopedic memory for jokes. So oh, yeah. you could literally say barbecue and he'd give you three jokes about barbecues he knew his stuff and there was a lot of frustration with keith one of the things that frustrated him was that he'd lumbered himself with props to him the ventriloquist dummies were props and the fact that orville took off and became so huge was a mixed blessing for him well i asked him about this because i'd once heard a rumor that he was so upset with the level of fame that Orville had achieved. And Orville was actually probably his less funny... Oh, God, Cuddles was hilarious. Cuddles, the monkey Cuddles was Cuddles was the funny dummy. Orville was playing it for oohs rather than laughs. The fact that, you know, he had that song that Bobby Crush wrote. The Orville song, yeah. The Orville song. I wish I could fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I open you don't the have to sky, sing it. You don't I have to can't. sing it. I'm I doing it, it. You night. can. 
I heard can't. It every you night, can. twice a I night. Wish I could fly. Oh God! Fly up in the sky. And then, he, and then the robot. Who the is robot, your very? I'm not going to stop, Lenny. Who is your very stop. best friend? <laughs> you are, right? Oh dear. Anyway, who is your very best friend? But the point I'm getting to is, I once heard that he attacked Orville. I asked Keith this. I said, I heard that you were once so frustrated and angry at Orville that you came off stage and you punched him, <laughs> threw him to the ground and attacked him, assaulted your own dummy. And he said, no, 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 I couldn't. I, wouldn't, I would never have done that to Orville, which is quite an odd oh. thing to say. But the thing was, yeah, I think you're right that he had a level of angst about his role as a niche Act. He was a killer comic. He was an unbelievable... He was quick-witted. He was funny. He did impersonations. He did an act where he had an Ernie Wise dummy and he did Eric and it was genius. He could do anything. I mean, you know, he could do the Royal Variety performance and bring the house down, but he wasn't known for being just Keith. He was always Keith Harris and... And that was a frustrating thing for him. Correct. But the reason I mention him now is that he was quite a sensitive guy, and I think when alternative comedy came along, unlike you, he decided not to get on that bus or not to be part of that phenomenon. And even as late as the early 2000s when I was with him, he would dismiss alternative comedy. I think he resented them. So it's just striking to me that he sort of got a little bit left behind, maybe. But you did His big thing was I did the good old days. I was on the Royal Variety. I stormed it. I brought the house down. But he never got his... I think he got a series once. I think he felt that they weren't investing in him as a, as a long-term artist. And I think that caused him great pain. And he was seeing people leapfrog him. But I also wonder why was it that you saw alternative comedy and recognised it as important and new and the way of the future, whereas he saw it and thought, I don't want to be part of that? I think place and time. I was 20-something. When I wasn't being in the Black Hawk Mystery Show, I was in London going to the Royal Court and the National and watching plays and going to see Black Theatre with Norman Beaton or with Joe or something. So I was aware that there was stuff going on. I was just stuck in this show. And so when we went to see the comic strip and started going to the comedy store on a regular basis, I started to think there's this other thing going on and I need to be aware of it in the next iteration of whoever I am because I'm not going to be in this big bow tie, big lapels, Lenny, for much longer. There's going to be a transition and I'm going to be ready when it happens. So one thing I wanted to mention, you talk in your book about the fact that when you became famous and successful and you were on TV, your mum, in some respects, your relationship with her changed. Yeah. And in fact, she started calling you Lenny, whereas before she'd always called you Len. Yeah. And parenthetically, I only just realised... Your name is Lenworth. Yeah. I was named after the doctor that delivered me. Right. Was that his surname? Dr. Lenworth. So mum called me Lenworth George Henry. The only people that ever called me Lenworth were teachers. Lenworth? Lenworth? Everybody called me Len or Lenny. So your mum began seeing you as maybe something slightly different. Yeah, it was really weird. Suddenly, the local paper, The Express and Star, was round my house, interviewing my mum, what's it like to have Lenny Henry as your son? And I'd be listening from the other room and I'd hear her go, well, my Lenny this, my Lenny that. And I'd go, who the hell is she talking about? Suddenly Lenny off the telly was now in our house. I wasn't Len anymore. And that caused me a great deal of heartache. 
because I thought she'd changed in her attitude towards me. This wasn't the woman that used to belt me. This was this woman who was impressed by show business. And I literally thought that would never happen. And I had to really work hard on that because I thought she'd changed like everybody else. I didn't expect her to change. And, I, and she did change. So did that feel in some way inauthentic? Did that make yeah. you resentful? Not resentful, just hurt and sad. The minute I was able to bring money into the house as an entertainer, all of the stuff that you'd normally get backhanded for or beaten for or whatever, none of that happened anymore. Suddenly I was the main breadwinner. I would get the biggest piece of meat at the dinner table. I would sit at the head of the table. No. Yeah, yeah. And I got very lost for a period in the first few years of being in the business because I was in a minstrel show. And every time I went home, there was the double-edged sword of being able to support my family, but doing it by being in a minstrel show. So I was very split and sort of going through some stuff in my head that I would have to work through. I didn't realise how big it was. In fact, I didn't imagine the other day with Alan Yentob, and my sister said that even though I was in a minstrel show, the minute I was able to provide and help the family, everybody's shoulders could relax because we weren't living on the breadline anymore. Len was there to help. I have to own that. I have to not be ashamed of that because that was a very, very, very positive thing. No matter how I was doing it, I was able to help my family. So I have to own that and not be ashamed of it. It was a good thing, not a terrible thing. What surprises me is there seems to be some part of you that does feel a little bit of shame about being in the minstrel show. But actually, to me, it seems completely understandable that you shouldn't have any sense of shame or guilt over that. You know, it surprises me that you would hang on to any of that. Well, you know, people are people, you know, people are weird. There's been much therapy (laughs) in the last few years of having to figure out how to deal with that. Paul Mooney, Richard Pryor's co-writer, forgave me during a South Bank show. We were both talking about African-American humour and performing a sort of faux minstrel show in the White Gloves. We wore blackface. And halfway through this thing, I just said, I've got to tell Paul Mooney, somebody I really admire, that I was in a minstrel show. And he said something like, you know what? You had to do what you had to do and look where you are now. You need to forgive yourself and get on with your life. And from the minute Paul Mooney said that, I went, actually, I'm going to accept that. Of course. What part of you would not think that, though? How could you blame yourself? I guess I'm being a bit naive about it, but it seems to me so evident that you were if not a child, a a very young man. And, I mean, it's hard enough for anyone starting in show business, let alone a black kid from Dudley Mm. with very bad advice whose parents and family aren't taking much of an interest in his career. They didn't know. It's not that they weren't taking an interest. They had no idea. Nowadays, you're in your bedroom singing or doing voices to your phone and uploading it to social media. Back then, it would have been seen as weird or impolite or impolitic to go around the house going, thank you very much, or here's a funny story, or whatever it was I was doing. I did that stuff on the park with my friends. It would have been weird to suddenly burst into Jailhouse Rock in front of my parents at the dinner table. It wasn't the done thing. Now, that's normal. Back then, it was a mates-only thing. And I'm glad it was like that. I'm glad that not everybody did it, and that I stood out. Now I'd audition for Britain's Got Talent and maybe not get on. Britain's Got Talent is a tough crowd. You know, you've got 40 seconds to impress Simon Cowell and he presses a buzzer and you're out of there. So, you know, I'm not sure I would have been that appreciated now. 
It would have been a different thing. It would have been different. Okay, last question. How's the rest of your day looking? No more Zoom meetings, and I should probably have a rest now and walk around and get your exercise. I think in this whole COVID universe, my biggest lesson has been on the need to take exercise. I don't really leave the house, but I do work out to a YouTube keep fit guru. We do a big walk at the end of every day. You've got to do it. And I think that when this is all over, we might keep that going as a thing. Yeah. To just go for a walk together. It's lovely. I'm going to try and keep up with my Joe Wicks. Joe Wicks, the workout guru. Yeah. I'd like to. I hope I can keep it up. I've lost a little bit of weight. So, Uh, you know. lost some timber. Trimmed a little few splinters off the timber. Not Yeah, good. It's a good thing. If that's a thing that's good that's come out of it and running out to clap the carers, I love that. I think that's good that we're acknowledging people. Don't forget to clap the delivery people tomorrow. What, between nine and ten? Sometime between nine and five. Okay. I will. You love that joke, don't you? I know. I thought I wondered if it would be funnier the second time. It wasn't. <laughs> uh, it's such an honour talking to you, Lenny. As someone who grew up with you as a familiar face on the TV, it's a thrill. I'm a 49-year-old man fulfilling a very old wish. Aww. So thank you for making it come true. Thank you. And thank you for saying hello. It's very weird if you're listening to this because Louis and I have met each other sort of around documentary festivals and around Television Centre and things. And I always say hello because I recognise Louis off the telly and he doesn't really know me. And this has been a lovely thing. I hope we get to talk in a more collegiate manner when I next see you. I would love that. So once we're all allowed out of our houses... Let's do that. ..we can talk from a safe distance. (laughs) From a distance. God is watching us. We should end it on like an old TV show in the 70s. They'd end on a a slow slow dance Um, No, you need to end on... And this is me, from a distance. Uh-huh. So here it is, Louis Theroux. Everybody's nice. having fun. You've been listening to Grounded with Louis Theroux. My guest today has been comedian, campaigner and actor, Sir Lenworth George Henry, better known to us as Lenny Henry. Next week, my guest is actor, musician and activist, Rose McGowan. Remember, there are more conversations in the series. Just search for Grounded with Louis Theroux on BBC Sounds and subscribe. This has been a Mindhouse production for BBC Radio 4, put together remotely by Paul Kobrak and Catherine Manan. Hello, I'm Greg Jenner. Usually I host the You're Dead to Me podcast and work on horrible histories, but while we're all cooped up indoors, I'm presenting a new podcast for the whole family. It's called Homeschool History, and every episode is a fun 15-minute guide to a fascinating historical subject. It's cheery, informative, and suitable for anyone who likes silly jokes and funny sound effects. And who doesn't? We'll have episodes on the Restoration, the Space Race, Charles Dickens, Florence Nightingale, Stone Age Britain, and plenty more. So that's Homeschool History with me, Greg Jenner, on BBC Sounds.